Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 72 for the week ending Monday, August 29th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu. Thank you for listening in. Today's show is jam-packed, folks, and you definitely want to stick around because later on in this week's episode, I'll be bringing you some exclusive clips of conversations I had with some key power players on the continent's tech and innovation scene. I caught up with them at Demo Africa 2016, which went down in Santon Joburg late last week. And uh, some of the people I spoke to include angel investor and founding president of the African Business Angels Network, Tommy Davies, Microsoft's director for venture capital and startups, as well as African initiatives, Amrote Abdella, the city of Joburg's director for economic development facilitation, Tolu Mohotzi, and managing partner of the Lions Africa Initiative, Stephen Ozegbo. But, of course, before we get to all that, we'll be covering the week's news headlines, which include the continent's biggest tech company, Naspers, taking serious strain in the face of fierce global competition, Spark Venture Fund reportedly investing $1 million in the mobile survey startup M-Survey, and Airtel Uganda and Human Network International, HNI, partnering to provide a free on-demand information service for Airtel's customers in rural Uganda. Now that's all coming up, but do remember that if you've missed any of our past episodes, you can catch up anytime you like by clicking through to africantechroundup.com. We also love to hear from you, so do give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can write us an email or send us an audio note via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our Quick Chats podcast series, which features brief and some not-so-brief conversations with leading pros working the trenches of Africa's tech scene. Think startup founders, VC players angel investors, and C-suite executives offering insights on what it's like to operate at the coalface of African innovation. Simply head to our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup and click on the Quick Chats playlist. Now it's time to get into this week's news. There's quite a bit of important tech news coming out of the East African region this week. We start with the news that Safaricom Limited has joined Silicon Valley's cross-culture ventures and the Virgin Group-backed Caribbean-focused Alpha Angels Network as investors in the mobile on-demand research startup M-Survey. While M-Survey has remained tight-lipped about the terms of the deal, the figure of $1 million is being circulated by regional news outlets and tech blogs, so we'll assume it's there or thereabouts. Now, M-Survey plans to use the Spark Venture Fund investment to add value to merchants who currently use Safaricom's Lipana M-Pesa service, a solution which allows consumers to pay for goods and services easily through their phones using M-Pesa. Now, Safaricom CEO Bob Collimore has said that they hope to leverage M-Survey's technology to better interact and engage with the mobile network's 25 million-odd customers through one-to-one conversations. It's a win-win if you ask me. And meanwhile, Safaricom and Croft Silicon's newly renamed ride-hailing service, Little, also announced this past week that Kenyans can now hail a little cab via USSD. 
Apparently, customers could now request a ride by simply dialing star 826 hash from their mobile phone. And that makes Little Cab the first cab hailing service in Kenya, which can be accessed by feature phone users. Now, the aim of this innovation is obviously to provide affordable and convenient cab services to as many Kenyans as possible. Uh, a form of inclusion, I guess. Uh, that buzzword certainly fits in this case. But Little is also promoting the fact that they take 15% of their driver's earnings compared to other players in the market who apparently take between 18 and 25%. Now, perhaps that'll help, you know, woo cab drivers to sign up with them. Of course, more important than the attractive commission structure they're offering their drivers, as, as far as I'm concerned, is the need for Little to onboard the masses as users of their service in order to make it worthwhile for drivers to go with them in the first place. So to that end, they've promised to reward Kenyan riders with airtime worth their ride up to a maximum of 500 shillings upon completion of their first and fifth rides. So listen, if you haven't tried them already, please do and tell us what you think on Twitter. Give us a shout at African Roundup. Then it's good news for Kenyan drone heads who might finally get to legally fly their toys now that the Kenyan government has announced that it plans to relax restrictions on drone use. Of course, uh, these restrictions were put in place uh, and in fact tightened amid security concerns in January 2015. Now, come September 2016, anyone who wants to fly a drone will need to secure permission from both the Ministry of Defense and the Kenya Civil Aviation Authority, the KCAA which is still a mission, if you ask me. So then when a drone operator registered with the KCAA, they will then receive a certificate which allows them to operate. Now, the idea is for the authority to establish a registration and identification system where drones will be categorized based on their use and weight. The new rules also state that drones cannot be flown above 400 feet um, or at night and that owners have to be over 18 years of age uh, as well as need to secure third-party insurance for their devices. Now, the KCAA has reportedly already received over 1,000 applications for drone licenses, and applicants range from filmmakers and photographers to relief services and other commercial operators. There's no doubt about it, folks. It's a ton of hoops to jump through for the recreational drone enthusiast, but at least the regulations do sound fairly reasonable and in the public interest. So let's see how it works out. To Uganda now, where Airtel Uganda and Human Network International, HNI, have partnered to launch a service to provide free on-demand information to rural Ugandan fishing and farming communities. The service, which has been called 161, will provide free public service information on farming, financial literacy, family planning, and other useful public information. You know, stuff like information on how to prepare for the growing season and how to adapt to climate change. Now, it said the service will be made available in English as well as five local languages, namely Ateso, Luganda, Lugbara, Luo, and Runyakitara. It will be made available via a simple call-in system that can be accessed through smartphones and feature phones. Uh, don't you just love how everyone's racing to be the most useful big tech firm? I mean, everyone seems to be trying to bust their own free basics move. Uh, look, I'm not fooled for a second into believing that they are altruistic motives at heart for such efforts. But hey, when they actually do help people and change lives, I can't hate. So good on you, Etel Uganda. We see you, fam. To Nigeria next, where online furniture marketplace showroom.ng is set to close shop come the end of August 2016. Now, after two years of operation, the platform's founder, Sheriff Shitu, announced this on Medium in a post entitled, 12 Years a Hustler, Time to Go Home. 
Now, Shuto started Showroom NG after working senior roles at Locoso, Conga, and Zima Fashion. And uh, in his refreshingly honest piece, he admits that he made some fatal mistakes in running Showroom.ng, which in December 2015, he said secured some significant funding. Now, the post chronicles the personal struggles he went through while running the, the platform. You know, stuff like being robbed at gunpoint and a couple of other rough things that uh, made his journey as a startup founder pretty tough. But I do love how he owns mistakes that were made and uh, perhaps errors in judgment uh, and, and how he takes full responsibility for the fact that this is his baby and that he is putting it to rest because he's done everything he can and it still didn't work. He said that he'll probably take a month off and just do nothing. And I think the very candid way he's shared his story is so important to our tech ecosystem um, because we need to learn to start being okay with failure and growing from it. And I have no doubt that someone like Sheriff will bounce back and perhaps be the, the stuff of legends in a couple of years once he's actually found his groove doing something else. So wishing you all the best there, Sheriff. Rest easy, my guy, but come back. Meanwhile, the e-commerce copycat juggernaut that is Jumia marches on. Uh, Jumia is launching its own third-party online payment solution called, wait, you guessed it, Jumia Pay. Now, apparently it's modeled after Alibaba's payment solution, Alipay, and will serve all 23 African countries that Jumia currently operates in. But it will definitely be rolling out in Nigeria first. Now, Jumia is trying to make paying for stuff online easier and more convenient by allowing users uh, to be able to make online payments like utility bills and airtime top-ups in addition to paying for their shopping online. Perhaps what this idea lacks in originality, it might make up for in other ways, like usefulness. Maybe? Yes? No? Well, we'll see, I guess. To South Africa now, where IBM has opened its first research laboratory in Southern Africa. Now, it's based in Bromfontein, Johannesburg, and features an infrastructure-as-a-service platform based on OpenStack connected to IBM StoreWise for efficiently provisioning 80 terabytes of storage for research projects. Now, researchers will be using the facility to explore the use of cognitive computing, the Internet of Things, and big data to support South Africa's national priorities, drive skills development, and foster innovation-based economic growth. Now, the center is IBM's second research facility on the continent, with the first located in Nairobi. Uh, it's located within the startup incubation hub at the Timolohong Precinct, which is run by Wits University and the Johannesburg Center for Software Excellence, the JCSC. Now, IBM has invested nearly $49 million in the lab, and entrepreneurs in the precinct will all be allowed access to scientists and engineers working there. So, Bramfontein is, sh- is shaping up into quite the tech hub in the Johannesburg area. Well done to you, IBM. There's definitely a development that will add value to that community. Now, staying with South African news, the continent's biggest tech firm by market value, Naspers, admitted last week that they're hurting and hurting real bad. Now, the internet and pay TV businesses are stalling in the face of various African currencies weakening against the dollar. Of course, in the various countries they operate in, their subscribers pay in local currency. And of course, the dollar is stronger, they lose. So uh, speaking at the company's annual general meeting last Friday, Nasper CEO Kuas Becker told investors to buckle up for a bumpy road ahead. He cited things like slowing growth across the continent, but most notably slowing growth in South Africa. I guess that's a diplomatic way of expressing the fact that the company has lost something like 288,000 pay TV subscribers across the continent. 
Now, he also said that fierce competition from the likes of Google, Facebook, and Amazon has eroded the profits of their online businesses. And that's not good news because Naspers is desperately looking to grow its internet businesses to ease the dependence it has on its 33% stake in Tencent Holdings. You know, the Chinese technology company that currently accounts for almost half its value. Uh, otherwise known as the company that has to stay alive. Otherwise, it's game over for Naspers. After the news broke on Friday last week, the news led to a 0.3% decline in the firm's share price on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. But more worryingly, uh, leading up to the announcement on Friday, S&P Global Ratings changed its outlook on Nasper's credit rating to triple B-. That's the lowest investment grade possible with S&P. So, ooh, how the mighty falter. But finally, in more cheerful news, Demo Africa 2016 went down in Santon, Johannesburg late last week. And guess what? It was awesome. I met quite a few of you who listened to our show out there. It was really nice interacting with you. Thank you for coming up to me and letting us know how, uh, how much you enjoy the show. It's really nice to get that sort of information. It's a lonely job otherwise. So um, really nice meeting those of you I did. However, it was truly quite a spectacle. It took me quite by surprise as someone who does a lot of these events, uh, conferences. Um, I try and limit the number of hackathons and pitch competitions in general. But man, was it worth my time last week. Everything ran like clockwork. The production value was insane. Uh, they were streaming the whole thing live online and it, it did create quite a buzz in media circles. But most importantly for me was the quality of the truly international crowd in attendance and the level of meaningful engagement I personally saw taking place. I literally saw this happen with my own eyes, um, people making the sort of connections that we only hear about or we hear you know, event organizers claim uh, they'll have happen at their events, but really do. So what I managed to do was catch up with some pretty insightful individuals who are intricately involved with the continent's tech ecosystem and pull them aside for candid chat. So uh, as promised, I'm going to share some highlights from those conversations. We'll start with a snippet from my chat with Stephen Ozigbo, who uh, is CEO of the African Technology Foundation, as well as the managing partner of the Lions Africa Initiative. They're the influential force behind Demo Africa. So take a listen to this. Tell us a little bit about Lions Africa and what being managing partner involves. Absolutely. Lions Africa is the platform for innovation, which is backed by the U.S. State Department. Um, it's uh, out of the Office of Global Partnerships. And uh, Demo Africa is one of our flagship events. And uh, what happens with this is we are following the global process of creating Launchpad for emergent technology companies. And Demo is in its fifth year. Uh, the first two years were in Nairobi. And then we had two years in Lagos. This is our first time in South Africa. It won't be our last. We're hoping to come back again. Whoopee. <laughs> Sorry for, to the rest of Africa. <laughs> but no, but I mean, certainly uh, if, we, if we do this right, then uh, we will definitely be around the block uh, a few times. And uh, what it is is, you know, we've done East Africa. We've done West Africa. So let's, let's come down south and then let's go up north. Well, let's talk about um, a little background on you before we talk about the specifics of business that's being done at, at the conference. Um, 
you've got quite an extensive history as an investment consultant, a background in uh, uh, in advisory. Uh, talk us through the journey to to landing, uh, you know, the spot you you now inhabit, or at least the the role you now inhabit with Lions. Absolutely, my background started uh, professionally with investment banking, and um, I have an MBA in global business. Part of my MBA I did in China, so I've always been sort of like uh, a global citizen. And uh, right after the 2008 crash, of course, um, my career pivoted into what I would call foreign direct investment advisory. Sorry, did you crash with it? Well, you can say that. Uh, You can say that. 2008, I don't know if there was any banker in the world who um, had a claim to fame. You know, and the ones that did are currently in jail. So that's how far I can go with that story. <laughs> so happily, happily, you're definitely not on the jail side, and you're on the, on the other side of the bars, which, <laughs> which is to say, you you survived, and none the worse for wear, for the way I can tell. No, thankfully so, because um, there were good times. Uh, there were good times prior to that. Uh, there were bad times immediately following that. And uh, the pivot allowed for that to happen because once you're comfortable with certain aspects of global um, financial transactions, moving over to Europe and starting to advise governments in the EU about innovation and investment uh, came easier for me. And um, for five years, I was the uh, FDI manager for the government of Catalonia in Spain. And um, within that period, uh, investment management and advisory for all of the startups uh, out of Barcelona, Catalonia, that we brought out. And um, that particular process really gave me the impetus to build a portfolio of companies of my own. Uh, So I became an angel investor in looking at uh, certain parts of um, that ecosystem. And being African, of, uh, of course, I was born in Nigeria. So being African, these were parts of the experiences I needed to have to do what I'm doing now because there was no way I could have come back to Africa and said, look, give me your money. I need to manage it for you or here I want to invest in so-and-so company without really um, chipping my teeth, really. So uh, here we are. I, I'm building portfolio companies. I'm making investments in some of them. And we started now to look at, okay, what's next? The State Department and, and the White House and USAID and the other agencies that we advise, these are all agencies who are doing fantastic work in Africa, but sometimes uh, need the in-betweens. And, um, you know, we're proud to be managing partners for the Lions Africa Initiative now. But um, it's also been a long time coming because we've been supporting them since day one. Given your, your, your position, you interact with various elements of the tech ecosystem, elements that often view each other with some level of, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say suspicion, but certainly a certain tentativeness, perhaps. And I think what Demo Africa does, in my opinion, is bring the various stakeholders in our ecosystem together to have conversations they might not otherwise have as easily. Tell me some of the challenges in engaging the various aspects of of the ecosystem. You you mentioned uh, public organizations and, and, and NPOs, and then there's you know the you know, venture capital community, the angel investment community, and of course the startup community, and then of course perhaps you know the enterprise community as a whole that's trying to hang on for dear life and not be disrupted and. And an event like this probably gives you a bird's eye view of what every, everyone's pain points are and what they need to get out of everything. What, what's your sense of how the dialogue between all these parties, how, how well that dialogue is going? That, that's a, a great question. Um, let's start with uh, 
the fact that Africa is not a monolith and uh, it's 55 countries. So for, for the most part, when people look at Africa and discuss certain things with a single brushstroke, that in itself is a problem, right? The ecosystem issue, or not even issue, the ecosystem opportunity as you portrayed it is somewhere uh, even in the United States, I, I said it on stage yesterday, I said, I represent the interests between Africa and Silicon Valley, but not Africa and Mississippi, not Africa and Ohio, right? Because I'm looking at uh, the mecca of innovation. But uh, Silicon Valley is not even a state. It's, it's part of California. California as a state gives us Hollywood. It gives us Silicon Valley. It also gives us agriculture. The, uh, you know, a lot of, 95% of wine in in america is made in california people don't realize that or you know so what am i trying to say here that each member each participant each node within this ecosystem has a role to play and all of those roles are aggregated into what could be the success of africa's burgeoning technology ecosystem it's early days it's very much early days so for what seems like organized confusion what we're really trying to do is knowing that everybody plays a part pick up your tools and go to work because the convening power that the likes of Demo Africa can bring can only do so much, right? We all still need to try and work things on a regional level, on a local level, and maybe sometimes to a municipal level. Um, a few years ago, I was, here in Cape, I was here in South Africa, but down in Cape Town, and I was, you know, at Stellenbosch University looking at what they were doing with, with entrepreneurs and technology um, on their campus, wonderful work, you know. And that's separated from everything else going on with the GSB at the University of Cape Town and everything else that's going on even with Silicon Cape and the likes. But the ecosystem needs a combination of all three or four of them, right? So we still have to make sure that the support environments, the enabling environments for all stakeholders within the ecosystem is right. And... um, Again, apologies to anyone who looks at it like organized confusion. Let's just call it a work in progress. Now, it was quite encouraging to see the way that Demo Africa created a platform to engage local municipal government in a way that, as a resident of Joburg, I haven't seen done before, to be honest. Um, They highlighted the critical role that cities, government, and public agencies have to play in fueling innovation. Take a listen to this. My name is Tolomo Hoti. I'm the Director for Economic Development Facilitation at the city of Johannesburg. Congratulations on your involvement uh, in hosting Demo Africa 2016. This has been an incredible initiative. Yes, it is. We're very excited. We're very happy that Demo Africa have had the confidence to give us this event to organize this year. So, I mean, just last week, in fact, this is part of uh, an an ongoing initiative you guys have called Fawukes, right? That's right. So we have a digital festival that happens every year that is anchored outside of Bramfontein, which is Johannesburg Digital Entrepreneurship Hub. And it's a celebration that continues up until September. And this is a time where the... You know, entrepreneurship ecosystem across South Africa is focused on Johannesburg and everybody's up here in Joburg. So it's been a very, very exciting week. So this basically is the highlight of that of that initiative, I'd say. Absolutely. This is definitely the highlight. Uh, it's very exciting to be here. Um, and, you know, 
there's so much excitement about demo because we don't have many events like this that are pan-African. So there are many events happening in Africa, but there aren't many pan-African events where there's participation and involvement from across the continent. And Demo Africa is definitely the most preeminent of those events. And uh, let's talk about this, this quote-unquote space race that cities across the world and indeed on the continent are in to become the most connected cities. Uh, I know certainly in South Africa, you guys in Swane have <laughs> you, uh, Cape Town, Swane and, and Johannesburg are in this tussle to deliver on this, uh, on this mandate, to deliver the most connected city on the continent. How far along are we in terms of that and how far ahead do you think you are of Swane and Cape Town? Well, we can confirm that, first of all, we are the first out of the block, so the rest are followers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and secondly, we have the largest network, and we have the fastest one. Right? Uh, and, you know, for us, uh, this is really about municipal infrastructure as a basic service. So for us, it's not a gimmick. The city is uh, in the process of creating a municipal entity that is providing telecoms and broadband as a municipal service. So we're in this for the long run. It may seem like it's a space race now, but maybe other people are going to run out of steam. But for us, we're here for the long haul. And, you know, just like every resident deserves to be connected to uh, the grid in terms of electricity and water, we think it applies to bandwidth as well. So I, I live in a, in a northern suburb neighborhood in Johannesburg, uh, one of the green leafy suburbs, all the suburbs of Johannesburg, lovely area. Uh, they've been digging up the whole area, fiber being placed. It seems private entities are jumping on the bandwagon in a big way in upgrading the, the, the broadband infrastructure in, in, uh, you know, in the city. I, I'm just curious to, to know where they fit in in your plan. What, what is the um, interaction between the private interests in the space and the public interests? Well, obviously, we're rolling out a very high-capacity network. So we offer it wholesale to the industry, and we do have quite a few customers that are including the, the big network service providers, the household ones. They are our customers. So the Vumas, the, the C-Fibers, those, those chaps. And the MTNs. <laughs> as big as um, even the, the, the mobile telcos who are now dabbling in the space. Correct, yeah. So, But we're also quite interested in Last Mile because you have to understand that, you know, uh, you are definitely in the target market for Vumatel, but not everybody who is a resident of Johannesburg would fit into the profile of that market. So you'll see that they are, for example, in the suburbs, uh, middle-class suburbs of Johannesburg, but they're not in the townships. Right? But everybody deserves to be serviced. So there's a certain level of service, a basic minimum service that we think everybody deserves, and where the private sector is not looking at filling that gap and there's a gap in the market, then obviously we have to go last mile and make sure that everybody gets access. So we have a program of free Wi-Fi hotspots that we've rolled out. There's now more than a thousand in Johannesburg and we're going to continue until the entire city is covered. And so typically what sort of access are you allowing? Is it zero rated? Is it, is it capped to a certain amount per individual? How does the average Joburg citizen go about accessing the service? It's currently capped at 200 megabytes a day. Uh, which is quite a good plan. That's about 6 gig a month, which is more than what you'll get in most of these plans that you pay for. Uh, so it's a good plan. But obviously, you know, we are creating a new municipal entity and so we're quite interested in reviewing that business model and seeing what works uh, over the long term. Now, as far as big tech companies go, precious few are bigger than Microsoft. I caught up with Amrote Abdella, who is Microsoft's Director for Venture Capital and Startups, as well as Africa Initiatives. And I asked her if Microsoft's presence at Demo Africa 2016 
meant that we should expect the company to keep up these levels of engagement and become more and more open to dialogue and collaboration. Take a listen to what she had to say. Am I reading it right uh, when, if I say that I'm noticing Microsoft developing a much more collaborative attitude, certainly compared to, like, say, 15, 20 years ago, where the evil word proprietary <laughs> basically ruled the day? And what do we have to thank for that? Is it the new generation of tech biggies like the, the Googles of this world that have, that have brought this, this attitude on. What sort of conversations are you having at Microsoft for this to, to become a reality, or at least, from a, at least from where I'm sitting, it seems to be, to be so? Look, I think what's, what's sh- shifted and changed, and especially sort of, and I'll focus on the Africa market, is that there are more and more players. So what, what is important for us is, as we're driving and investing on the long-term competitiveness of Africa, is how do we also make sure that we drive value for our customers, like, and, and that's really sort of at the bottom of sort of some of the changes and, and the shifts that you're seeing. Uh, our mission today is on how do we empower every person on the planet and organization to actually do and achieve more. So when you think of that, then you, we, we, we're, we're working with partners, but collaboration and sort of the customer obsession is really at the heart of it. And, and how do we d- deliver the best value uh, for our customers and sort of in the way we're driving our business, but also in the offerings that we have uh, and the options and, and opportunities that we also create for future customers as well. Um, I recently spoke to a higher up at Ford. They're part of, in their industry, a space race towards autonomous vehicles. Um, they're, they're playing alongside unlikely disruptive uh, entities like Google, um, uh, perhaps Uber even. Um, and, and they're very uh, focused, di- different focuses, different focus areas that traditional businesses, say, originally in tech, are now thinking about moving over into some other industry. What is the next big thing, as far as Microsoft is concerned, uh, from a disruptive point of view? Perhaps an area that you aren't considered, might not have uh, traditionally been considered your core, that you guys have a huge eye on. Uh, perhaps a few years ago, it might have been mo- you know, entering the mobile market. What is that for Microsoft today? Look, I think there, there are a number of areas. So the disruption absolutely is happening across the board, across different sectors. So from Airbnb to Uber, who are completely disrupting sort of our existing traditional industries, we are also keen and aware that that disruption can actually be to, to the benefit of how we drive our own sort of uh, investments and, and areas of research and development. So today, I'll tell you, like, I mean, everyone is talking about IoT, right? Sort of how do we, how is that disrupting our lives, our businesses? How do we tap into it to sort of drive productivity, but also enhance our own offering and sort of drive the evolution of our business models? But to that, I think I would actually argue between artificial intelligence and blockchain. I think that's where some of the big sort of areas of opportunities also lie. So how do we double down our investments there? How do we understand what that means in terms of the next place that we'll go to? So is there some secret lab in Kigali or Nairobi, Harare or, or Johannesburg somewhere where you guys have like uh, the best minds uh, working away trying to be at the forefront of some of the things you mentioned? I think, look, there's definitely research and investment that Microsoft does, especially at the corp level. Uh, we don't have any secret labs on the continent, to, to be clear. Uh, but definitely, I think sort of as we're seeing the different shifts and, and the synergies of things that are emerging, uh, and even working some with, with some of our partners in the tech space, those are definitely areas where we know sort of where the next disruption will definitely land and how do we prepare not only ourselves, but also the next wave of, of business models and, and industries to emerge and sustain as well.
Has Microsoft been affected by this trend towards uh, diverting spend in research and development to, you know, mergers and acquisitions? Well, not so much mergers in your case. Really more acquisitions or little minnows who, who might add some value to the, to the behemoth that is Microsoft. But where, what is your attitude towards that um, as far as, you know, the global tech scene is concerned, do you think? Look, I think there's definitely an opportunity to sort of continue to from the early acquisitions of Skype, right? Like, so how do we make sure that we understand what's happening where? How do we tap into it and how do we sort of add it to our existing services and make sure that we can add value, again, coming back to the customer, uh, to, to really deliver a better experience? So I think that, I think, will continue to be within the focus, not only here in Africa and, and partnering with some of our startups, but also really thinking globally, how do we make sure that we are looking out for the next innovation so that will continue to be there uh, within the Africa context absolutely look it's not it's less from the from the acquisition perspective but really thinking on how do we develop and support startups so from technical support to go to business support and uh, go to market strategy support but more importantly on on the funding side how do we make sure and continue to support provide uh, grants that allows startups to go to the next phase right so from bootstrapping to being able to now tap into additional and and uh, bigger funds so absolutely we'll definitely continue to keep an eye out for what's next and i think demo is a perfect platform to continue to sort of explore but continue to provide our 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 pipeline and channels uh, and our resources and engines from our skills to the technical experts so that we can really help them get to the next stage so now farouk Giovanni is a business consultant turned angel investor who's recently made a couple of pre-seed investments in two east african startups now i caught up with him to find out what he made of the Viber Demo Africa, and also just give me a sense of why he's bullish on African early-stage startups in general. Take a listen. I ran into you at the uh, South African Business Angels Network launch. Uh, this is your first time in town, right? Um, no, I've been in Joburg, like in my past career, where I used to work here at in Cape Town. Um, but this is my first time in town as an investor in startups. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a little bit about that, and we'll weave in. Your, your past history and what would motivate you to, to take the plunge and, and choose, uh, you know, Africa as the place to, you know, to dip your feet, so to speak. So what do you make of Demo Africa 2016? We've had conversations about this off mic. So to date, I haven't been involved in the, let's say, ecosystem in Africa as, you know, as much as I probably should be. Um, this is probably my first large event um, within the startup entrepreneurship ecosystem in Africa. And I have to say, I'm impressed. It's definitely going in the right direction. Um, there's a lot of interest um, in, in, in driving entrepreneurship um, across the continent. Um, I think everyone understands that it will drive a tremendous amount of value. Um, and I'm impressed that it's going in the right direction. And so that's saying a lot given your background. You've got a, a consulting background. You spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Uh, you actually just fresh from a stint at, at uh, Stanford. All impressive things. So what are you most impressed about uh, given the, the benchmarks you've obviously been exposed to elsewhere? So I think, uh, you know, one, I think the quality of entrepreneurship is, is improving. Um, I, I've been meeting with entrepreneurs over the last three years while I've been in East Africa. And, uh, you know, I'd say I can see it improving. Yeah. Um, and I can also see that there is a lot of more interest from angels and investors locally, not just internationally, in investing in African entrepreneurs and growing the space. And it's not token, right? 
No, I think they're looking at it from a business perspective. So it's not like, you know, let's invest in this because it's charity or it's social impact only, but they're looking at it from a, these are good businesses. There's viable, you know, profits that will come out of these investments. And that's why we're going to do it. So there are a lot of you, you know, consulting types that uh, leave the business, you know, and, and then sort of turn commentators on the tech ecosystem. Not many are like you, um, serious about becoming angel investors. In fact, you've put your money where your mouth is. You, you've invested in dundo.com uh, as well as cyber.co.ke. What has been your experience in terms of transitioning from <laughs> essentially consulting around helping other people manage their resources to managing your own? So I don't think my transition into investing was, let's say, perhaps as structured as it needed to be. Um, I kind of made investments and said, all right, did I make the right investments? Did I do them in the right manner? Um, I feel confident in the ones that I've made today. I think they're good investments. I think there's a lot of potential. Um, but that transition has kind of been a desire to help build companies and have a vested stake in it. Yeah. When you're a consultant, you fix everyone else's business and then you leave and then it wasn't yours. And typically people hate you after you're gone. I think they like me, but maybe others. <laughs> Well, I suppose. It depends, again, who you are in the organization. Typically, if you're in the C-suite, they love you. The C-suite loves me. Everybody else kind of didn't like me. But, you know, that's part of the part and parcel of the game, I guess. So when you talk about a structured approach to, to, to investing, uh, let, let's dial back. Okay, let's dial back to you're sitting in the U.S. thinking about which part of the world to exercise, you know, your... Your, you know, to flex your angel investment wings. <laughs> um, and, and then you pick Africa and then later pick specifically Kenya and then specifically these businesses. Tell me about the, the sort of science or lack thereof that was applied to each process. So I think it didn't start in the U.S. I mean, I've left the U.S. 10 years ago. I lived in Asia for five years. I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years, worked across, I think, 18 countries. Um, somewhere along that process where, you know, you realize I'm a consultant. I help everyone else. I don't necessarily have anything at stake. I, don't, I can't show anything for all the work I've done over all of these years. Um, I started looking at, well, where do I want to settle? Where do I want to invest? Um, where do I want to grow my, you know, my future life? Um, it was Africa. That was kind of an easy answer why why is it so easy so, it's not so obvious for other people so, for some so easy whether it was fully thought out and fully understood about the challenges of actually doing business here and growing businesses um perhaps not um but one of the primary reasons was you know my family was originally from tanzania um and uh, my parents were born there my grandparents were born there i had no experience there before the age of i think 29 um or 28 yeah 26 um but i moved to east africa because i like emerging markets um, and I'd spent a lot of time in Asia from like 2006 to 2011, and I'd seen Southeast Asian economies basically take this curve up and develop. I've seen entrepreneurship develop there. Um, in 2006, there's probably very little liquidity in the market. There was not a lot of investments going on. You had your founders pitching for their first investments. Um, you had very little VC activity. And if you look at it today in 2016, it's very active. It's growing. Um, and these 300 million 200 million, 100 million person economies um, are now driving investment growth and, you know, mobile phones have transformed those countries. Um, I kind of looked at the map and I said, okay, well, where is it going to happen next? Right? India, it's kind of happened. What's the next step? Africa is the obvious answer. Um, and I think the change it can drive in Africa, whether that, you know, the mobile phones, smartphones, the internet, um, and the development of businesses and technologies on these platforms 
have a more drastic impact in Africa than they do elsewhere. Um, and that, from that, there's a lot of value to be extracted out of businesses, and there's a lot of people to empower through those products. Right. So you settled on Africa. You choose Kenya. Lagos would be, you know, certainly on the list of places you could consider settling down. Uh, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Kigali, you know, Accra, Cairo, you know, uh, even even Morocco. Um, what? Why Kenya? So I think. East Africa is quite interesting in that, you know, if you take mobile money in East Africa, um, there's 55 countries across this continent, and they're all different. They're all very, very different. Yeah, the difference between Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, completely different. Um, And you've got to understand those nuances if you're building businesses in these markets. East Africa, for me, was a bit of a, you know, when I say East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda. If I missed out on anybody, I apologize. Uh, But those, those markets are, I think... Um, I had a personal connection to them. Yeah, um, I had family history there, and, and, and it made sense for me to go there. Um, in terms of Nairobi specifically, so Nairobi and Kenya, I think, has a great deal of human capital, um, and that's very important in doing this. Um, and, and governments and economies around Africa, you know, countries around Africa, need to understand that money follows talent, and developing talent requires investment in education. And if that investment in education is happening evenly across Africa, um, everybody would have the same attention as Nairobi, Lagos. Yeah, um, but that's not the case. And, and that, I think that's kind of the challenge. Um, Nairobi is, I think, a great starting point for all of East Africa. Um, you've got great human capital. Um, you have investment that has gone in in the past. Um, so you have iHub, you have Nairobi Garage, you've had accelerators based out of Nairobi. Um, and if there is a fund in East Africa, they're present in Nairobi. Now, not to say that there's other countries that are not driving that investment. Um, Rwanda has completely changed a lot of the legislation around capital gains and investments to make it appealing for investors to invest in Rwanda, especially in entrepreneurship, in tech. Um, and they've created a government fund to do so. Um, I think the question for me is, how do these African countries work together to actually build an overall ecosystem? Because while Nigeria may only care about Nigeria because they have lots of people in Nigeria, the value is really across a continent. I mean, if you take the U.S., for example, the U.S. has 300 million people with an average GDP per capita that is significantly higher than the GDP per capita across every African country. So if you launch a product or business in the U.S. in one country with one set of legislation, with one set, you know, with one common market, you could expand across a population that has a relatively high GDP per capita. Very quickly. Yes. And it's a lot easier. So if you want to build a business and make money, you do it in the U.S. You wouldn't go and say, let me do it in Nigeria. Let me do it in Kenya. Because if I'd launch in Kenya, I've got 40 million people with a lower GDP per capita. So how am I going to extract value? And at the end of the day, all of this investment is... If it's not driven by, if it's not driven by making money, it's not going to be of long-term value to these economies, to these people, um, and so on. And, and I think that's absolutely key. Um, so the question is, how do the, how does Africa, you know, whether it be East Africa as a region, whether it be Sub-Saharan Africa, whether it be um, certain regional blocks, work together to, you know make it appealing for an investor to invest in Tanzania, invest in Rwanda, but expand their business beyond that single market so they can actually gain value out of the money that is invested. You're sort of betraying your hopes 
as uh, in terms of what you where you'd like to see the the continent go in terms of the 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 the, the corporate tech ecosystem maturing uh, and certainly giving the investments you've made so far a chance to scale successfully across a number of different countries right yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I have made investments specifically in a space where I believe you can scale across countries. Um, so we take Madundo, for, for example. Madundo is currently East Africa's largest music streaming service with a monthly million monthly active users. Um, do we extract value from all those million monthly active users? We are revenue generating. But the big picture is we have more and more people coming onto mobile phones. We have more and more people consuming content through their mobile phones and moving away from traditional forms of media, i.e. radio. So right now we know that on average our users spend 90 plus minutes a month listening to content on our platform. That's 90 minutes they're not on radio. Now, do we have a million users in Kenya? No. Ironically, our largest user base today is now in Tanzania. Why? Because the cost of data. Now, if we're a startup and we only focused on one country, Kenya, we're more likely to fail. But if we look at our business and our product and say we're going to invest, you know, if I look at it as an investor and the company looks at it as we've got to be a regional product or a pan-African product, you're giving, your chance a, you're giving yourself a greater chance of success. Yeah? And I think that's my investment methodology is whatever I invest in, whether it be fintech, which is Saiba, or whether it be Madundo, which is media, um, it's got to play across a region, multiple countries, if not part of the continent or all of the continent. Um, because that's where you'll be able to extract, let's say, those returns that are required to make investment appealing, right? If you tell me your addressable market is a million people in Nairobi and it's going to grow by 6% per annum or 10% per annum for the next 20 years, that's not sexy. If you tell me that there's a billion people across a continent and they're moving to mobile phones and their population is 60% under the age of 18, and I'm not quite sure I'm telling the right demographics, there's a lot of numbers that float around, but... Let's agree, right? The African population is young. The African population is moving onto mobile phones, and this is transforming them. They're getting connectivity. Of course, there's lots of challenges in terms of like roads and power and all of the basic infrastructure, but this phone, you know, mobile phones are changing everything. And if you understand that, the value is in playing across a larger part of the op- African population rather than saying a border restricts my business. And finally, Harry Tommy Davies is widely considered the godfather of the African angel investment scene. He is the founding president of the African Business Angels Network, as well as a very generous and very wise man. Now, here he is sharing a mental framework for those of us keen on creating value through business. Uh, You would do well to listen. So, um, Tommy Davis, please uh, give give us a framework for how to approach business. (laughs) It, it, you know, I, I call it for every vision that creates value, there must be a poem. As in art? No, not if, if you can keep your head when those around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. No, not that kind of poem. It's actually an acronym. Um, and it's a good way to think about the business. The first thing about a business, and there are two parts to the business, the first is the promise or the proposition, which is what, what exactly is your proposition to the market? What is that product? What is that offer? What is that service? And most importantly, who is it for? 
So you got to get that first. That's where it starts. Is all right. You know, you're solving a problem. Who's who are you solving the problem for? Okay, there's an opportunity. Who's the opportunity for? So that is the P, which is proposition, you know, or your promise. That's that's where business starts. And wrapped around that are things like who's the competition? You know, what are the uh, substitutes for it? What is the regulatory environment? But the bottom line of your proposition is the revenue. It must be clear. Okay, the proposition's clarity comes through revenue from customer. That, that it must answer that question when you think about it. So when you issue one statement about your proposition, he should be able to tell me, okay, what's the customer revenue stream like? So that I'm clear on that. Now that we've got the proposition clear, all right, which is the first part of the business, the question then becomes, okay, that's nice. I can see how that would be money and you could make money from that. Who's going to do that? So the O is for the organization that is going to deliver on the promise. Okay, so what kind of people are we talking about? What kind of structure are we talking about? The people having? What kind of processes will they execute to make that happen? What kind of underlying technology do they have to deploy? You know, you start to get it. Okay, and through that, you start to understand what it's going to take to create the value of the proposition. All right? So once you've got those two fundamental building blocks of your business, then you start to measure them. The first measure is money, which is the economics, the E of it. How does the economics of the proposition match the economics of the organization? In short, the cost that the organization is going to be, you know, have, does that match the revenue that the proposition is going to generate? That's the economics of it all. So once you understand that, and you can get a return on investment or return on capital employed, etc. We can get into technical details, but you understand what I mean by economics of it. Then you get to the final thing is, okay, where have you come from? Where are you now and where are you going? So what are the milestones in the journey of that value creation? Well, that's where the project management mindset that you exactly. talked about comes in. Exactly, and that's the project management. So those are the milestones. So P-O-E-M, poem. And if you can articulate that in your mind, you can do an elevator pitch, you can do a business plan, and you can even run a multi-billion dollar business using that framework. Thank you so much for speaking to me and um, to speaking to all, all the people who listen to this podcast. Really, uh, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your flight back to... Follow to me on Tommy D. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You're also quite socially active. Where else can people find you? On Tommy, that's Tommy D with a double E. T-O-M-I-D-E-E. Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, you name it. I'm on it. If I'm not on it, let me know. I'll get on it. <laughs> He's not taking the future lying down, this man. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Look, I'm going to live on and on and on and on in cyberspace, as we called it when we began the internet. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My pleasure. And you can probably tell that that was the tail end of a very long insight-filled chat that I had with the great Tommy Davies. The full conversation I had with him will drop next week. I'll be sure to give you all the details when it does. And be sure to check out the Quick Chats playlist during the course of this week because we'll be sharing the full conversations I had with Stephen Ozigbo of Lions Africa, Sulumukhotsi of the city of Joburg, Amroti Abdella of Microsoft, and Farouk Giovanni. A big thank you to all of them for speaking to me. 
And then be sure to tune in again next week because I'll be sharing more exclusive interviews from Demo Africa 2016 on the show. Otherwise, once again, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by our Quick Chats podcast series, which features brief and some not-so-brief conversations with leading pros working the trenches of Africa's tech and innovation scene. That's where we'll be sharing the chats I had with Stephen, Tsolo, Amrote, and Farouk all through this week. So be sure to head to our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com forward slash African Tech Roundup and click on the Quick Chats playlist when you get there. And that's the week's show, folks. Catch the show again next week, Monday, on africantechroundup.com at 9 a.m. Central African time. Until then, I'm Andile Masugu. Take it easy, Africa.